The Word of God, the Holy Bible, is a treasure and a gift beyond compare. Every passage of it points to a marvelous truth that God's love for man impelled him to step out of eternity and unite with his creation in order to redeem him from sin. Jesus Christ is both the author and subject of this precious word. Join us at the Superior Word each week as we search out this wonderful gift in search of Christ Jesus. Luke chapter 19, starting in verse 28. When he had said this, speaking of Jesus, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. And it came to pass when he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany at the mount called Olivet that he sent two of his disciples saying, Go into the village opposite you, where as you enter you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Loose it and bring it here. And if anyone asks you, Why are you loosing it? Thus you shall say to him, Because the Lord is need of it. So those who were sent went their way and found it just as he had said to them. But as they were loosing the colt, the owners of it said to them, Why are you loosing the colt? And they said, The Lord has need of him. Then they brought him to Jesus, and they threw their own clothes on the colt, and they set Jesus on him. And as he went, many spread their clothes on the road. Then, as he was now drawing near the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of the disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees called to him from the crowd, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. But he answered and said to them, I tell you that if these should keep silent, the stones would immediately cry out. Wonderful stuff there. Okay, let's see here. We are now in Leviticus chapter 26. We had the blessings last week, right, everybody? Well, I'm sorry, we've got to get to the curses. And I, I have to tell you that there are a couple of sermons that, you know me, I blubber a lot when I give sermons, but there are not many times that I cry when I type sermons. But I can tell you that thinking about what happened to Israel because of their rejection of the Lord has brought me to tears. Not only typing, but also practicing. So I hope today I'll be able to control that. But I want you to know that this is, this is the word of the Lord. As I said in the last sermon, this is in the first person. I will do this and I will do that. It's a very sobering thing if you think it through properly. But we're going to read the verses and then we'll get into it. It's starting in Leviticus 26, starting in verse 14 and going through verse 39. But if you do not obey me and do not observe all these commandments, and if you despise my statutes or if your soul abhors my judgments so that you do not perform all my commandments but break my covenant, I will also do this to you. I will even appoint terror over you, wasting disease and fever, which shall consume the eyes and cause sorrow of heart. And you shall sow your seed in vain, for your enemies shall eat it. I will set my face against you, and you shall be defeated by your enemies. Those who hate you shall reign over you, and you shall flee when no one pursues you. Verse 18, and after all this, if you do not obey me, then I will punish you seven times more for your sins. I will break the pride of your power. I will make your heavens like iron and your earth like bronze, and your strength shall be spent in vain, for your land shall not yield its produce, nor shall the trees of the land yield their fruit. Then if you walk contrary to me and are not willing to obey me, I will bring on you seven times more plagues according to your sins. I will also send wild beasts among you, which shall rob you of your children, destroy your livestock, and make you few in number, and your highways shall be desolate. 
And if by these things you are not reformed by me, but walk contrary to me, then I also will walk contrary to you. And I will punish you yet seven times for your sins. And I will bring a sword against you that will execute the vengeance of the covenant. When you are gathered together within your cities, I will send pestilence among you, and you shall be delivered into the hand of the enemy. Again, keep thinking, this is in the first person. This is in the first person. The Lord is saying, I will do these things. When I have cut off your supply of bread, ten women shall bake your bread in one oven, and they shall bring back your bread by weight, and you shall eat and not be satisfied. And after all this, if you do not obey me, but walk contrary to me, then I also will walk contrary to you in fury. And I, even I, will chastise you seven times for your sins. You shall eat the flesh of your sons, and you shall eat the flesh of your daughters. I will destroy your high places, cut down your incense altars, and cast your carcasses on the lifeless forms of your idols, and my soul shall abhor you. I will lay your cities waste, and bring your sanctuaries to desolation, and I will not smell the fragrance of your sweet aromas. I will bring the land to desolation, and your enemies who dwell in it shall be astonished at it. I will scatter you among the nations and draw out a sword after you. Your land shall be desolate and your cities waste. Then the land shall enjoy its Sabbath as long as it lies desolate, and you are in your enemy's land. Then the land shall rest and enjoy its Sabbath. As long as it lies desolate, it shall rest. For the time it did not rest on your Sabbaths when you dwelt in it. And as for those of you who are left, I will send faintness into their hearts in the lands of their enemies. The sound of a shaken leaf shall cause them to flee. They shall flee as though fleeing from a sword, and they shall fall when no one pursues. They shall stumble over one another as it were before a sword when no one pursues, and you shall have no power to stand before your enemies." You shall perish among the nations, and the land of your enemies shall eat you up. And those of you who are left shall waste away in their iniquity in your enemies' lands, also in their fathers' iniquities, which are with them. They shall waste away. I want to say before I start the sermon that uh, Doug, who does a painting for every one of our sermons this week, did one which is so terrifying based on these verses that I cannot include it as the cover of the uh, YouTube video because it would be banned, okay? It will be in the video itself. It's reality, it's moving, but it is, it's just looking at it almost horrifies me. It, it, it's so well done. Doug has got such a heart for understanding these things. And so in order to have a painting that we can use as a cover for the YouTube video, he did a second one this week. He went to a lot of extra work for that, and I want to thank him for that. Uh, he did a really marvelous thing about the seven times over, sewing seven swords, flaming swords. It's really marvelous, and it'll make a great cover. But uh, what he did for the punishment phase of this sermon is really moving. And if you get a chance, go onto my wall on Facebook and take a look. It's heartbreaking. Palestine sits in sackcloth and ashes. Over it broods the spell of a curse that has withered its fields and fettered its energies. Where Sodom and Gomorrah reared their domes and towers, that solemn sea now floods the plain, in whose bitter waters no living thing exists, over whose waveless surface the blistering air hangs motionless and dead, about whose borders nothing grows but weeds and scattering tufts of cane, and that treacherous fruit that promises refreshment to parching lips, but turns to ashes at the touch. 
Nazareth is forlorn about that fort of Jordan where the hosts of Israel entered the promised land with songs of rejoicing. One finds only a squalid camp of fantastic Bedouins of the desert. Jericho, the accursed, lies a moldering ruin today, even as Joshua's miracle left it more than 3,000 years ago. Bethlehem and Bethany, in their poverty and their humiliation, have nothing about them now to remind one that they once knew the high honor of the Savior's presence. The hallowed spot where the shepherds watched their flocks by night and where the angels sang, Peace on earth, goodwill to men, is untenanted by any living creature and unblessed by any feature that is pleasant to the eye. Renowned Jerusalem itself, the stateliest name in history, has lost all its ancient grandeur and has become a pauper village. The riches of Solomon are no longer there to compel the admiration of visiting Oriental queens, the wonderful temple which was the pride, and the glory of Israel is gone. And the Ottoman Crescent is lifted above the spot where on that most memorable day in the annals of the world, they reared the Holy Cross. The noted Sea of Galilee, where Roman fleets once rode at anchor, and the disciples of the Savior sailed in their ships, was long ago deserted by the devotees of war and commerce, and its borders are a silent wilderness. Capernaum is a shapeless ruin. Magdala, the home of beggared Arabs. Bethsaida and Chorazin have vanished from the earth and the desert places round about them where thousands of men once listened to the Savior's voice and ate the miraculous bread, sleep in the hush of a solitude that is inhabited only by birds of prey and skulking foxes. Palestine is desolate and unlovely. And why should it be otherwise? Can the curse of the deity Beautify a land that was Mark Twain in 1869. He traveled all the way through all of the biblical areas, Greece, followed where Paul was. He got to the northern border of Israel, and all the way through, all he found was devastation and desolation. There were no people there. You saw how he described one place that's populated with Fakistinians today, claiming that they've been there forever. He said it's otherwise. The world has seen the miracle of the Jewish people return to their land. And in their return, the land has become fruitful once again, exactly as the Bible prophesied would happen. And he raised up Mark Twain for a particular reason, to go on that trip, is to document it before that would occur. Our text verse today comes from Romans chapter 4. For the promise that he would be heir of the world was not to Abraham or to his seed through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if those who are of the law are heirs, faith is made void and the promise made of no effect because the law brings about wrath for where there is no law, there is no transgression. Where there is no law, there is no transgression. Thank God for those marvelous words. The law was given, it was agreed upon, and penalties for its violation are clearly stated. Nothing could be more dramatic than reading the words of Leviticus 26 and then comparing them to the words of Mark Twain. It is as if one was penned simply to confirm the other. I attended a Jewish funeral where the rabbi who spoke mentioned Leviticus 26 and its many punishments. 
He dismissed what it said as if it was completely irrelevant to the Jewish people and to the state of the world in which they have lived and still live. And yet Leviticus 26 exactingly explains their state now and what has occurred to them as a people in every possible detail. Instead of dismissing what it says, they should be terrified by it, remorseful over how it has been proven true and repentant in their actions of heart and deed. And even more, they should look to why these things came upon them a second time. It's been staring them in the face for these past 2,000 years. From time to time, one will realize and will understand. That rare soul is mentioned in Romans chapter 11. Paul says that he is one of the remnant according to the election of grace. This means that he or she has come to Christ. That soul is now no longer under the law, but under grace. For the rest... They are still bound to what has afflicted them all along. And sadly, they will be judged by that same law when they stand before their God. When you say your prayers each day, remember to include Israel. They are back in the land, but they are not right with God. Such truths are to be found in his superior word. And so let's turn to that precious word once again. And may God speak to us through his word today. And may his glorious name ever be praised. I have only two thoughts for you today. I know there are a lot of verses. We don't usually do this many. Our first thought is, if you do not obey me, it's verses 14 through 17. Verse 14, but if you do not obey me and do not observe all these commandments, verse 3 through 8 gave the assurances of blessing for obedience to the Lord in keeping his statutes and commandments and performing them according to the law. A contrast to those verses is now given. The horrifying consequences for disobedience are now forthcoming. What will be presented as punishment to be inflicted upon those who stubbornly refuse to comply is documented as having come about in the remaining pages of Scripture. The Lord promised blessing, and it came upon the people when they complied. The Lord now promises curses, and they have come upon the people when they refused to comply. Verse 15, and if you despise my statutes or if your soul abhors my judgments so that you do not perform all my commandments, but break my covenant, a new word, ma'as, is brought in here. It signifies to despise unto rejection. It comes from a root, meaning to spurn. It will become common in scripture as the people reject the Lord and his word, and he in turn rejects them individually, such as in King Saul, or collectively, such as when the people reject the law. It is used in the 118th Psalm when speaking of the stone which the builders rejected, a prophecy of the coming Messiah. What was a passive indifference noted in verse 14 is now an active attitude here. The words used, ma'as, despise, ga'al, abhor, and parar, or break, are purposeful and they're active but they must be taken in their proper light. Individual sins, although regrettable, are not what is being spoken of here. The law provided for the atonement of such sins. Instead, the state of the people as a collective group is what is being addressed. As the overall attitude of the people came to despise the statutes, abhor the judgments, and willingly fail to perform all of the commandments, thus breaking the covenant, then the anticipated curses would be poured out upon them. Exodus 24, 7 says, Then he took the book of the covenant and read in the hearing of the people, and they said, All that the Lord has said we will do and be obedient. 
they had agreed to this as a collective group, and thus they would be collectively punished for failure to comply as they had promised. One might ask, though, how could this be collective when Paul says this in Galatians? For as many as are works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not continue in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. The answer is that all those who failed to do the things of the law were under a curse, but the Day of Atonement was there to cover those individual sins. As the nation moved away from accepting the need for national atonement for these individual sins, they collectively brought on the national curse. This is why even the individuals who were mournful over their sins were caught up in the national guilt. Verse 16, I also will do this to you. The word af, translated here as also, is not an uncommon word in Scripture, but it has not been used since Genesis chapter 40. Now it's going to be used nine times through the end of the chapter. It indicates addition. One might think of this, therefore that. The Lord will use this word in the negative six times until verse 41, and then he will use it three times in the positive in verses 42 through 44. There is a sense of increase in the punishment due to Israel's rejection of the covenant and then an increase in the Lord's faithfulness in keeping that same covenant. You see the contrast. Israel fails. The Lord keeps his covenant. Verse 16 continues. I will even appoint terror over you, wasting disease and fever, which shall consume the eyes and cause sorrow of heart. The word appoint is pakad. It comes from a root meaning to visit. In the words here, the Lord in the first person promises a purposeful divine visitation upon the people. What will be described is from his hand, and he is the source of the calamity which will be described. The first curse is a new word, bahala, or terror. This is then defined by two more new words, translated as wasting disease and fever. Those two words will be seen again in Deuteronomy 18, verse 22, and then never again in Scripture. But the Lord promises the result will be mechalot enayim umedevot nafesh, or literally, consume the eyes and pine away the soul. The idea of this phrase is that the eyes, meaning the light of life, will extinguish, and the soul, meaning life itself, will pine away. Though different Hebrew words are used, these same troubles are recorded as having come upon them in Lamentations. For those who follow these things, the word duv or pine away is found only here in this verse in the Bible. Verse 16 continues, and you shall sow your seed in vain, for your enemies shall eat it. This is probably speaking of the people laboring in the field and others eating what is produced. This is what most scholars comment on. However, the Hebrew says something that may be more terrifying. It more literally says, you shall sow your seed to no purpose and your seed will be eaten by your enemies. The question is, why doesn't it say harvest or produce instead of seed? The other four times that the word zarachem or your seed is used in scripture, it is speaking of descendants. As the first part of this verse is speaking of the dying of the individual, it makes more sense that this is speaking of one's posterity, being eaten either literally or figuratively, by the enemy. This would then be fulfilled in Jeremiah 10, verse 25, where it says, Pour out your fury on the Gentiles who do not know you, and on the families who do not call on your name. For they have eaten up Jacob, devoured him and consumed him, and made his dwelling place desolate. 
Verse 17, I will set my face against you and you shall be defeated by your enemies. For the Lord to set his face against Israel means that he will direct his attention towards them in anger and that will be poured out on them in indignation. Their enemies, the tool of his anger will defeat them. The first person shows that the Lord determined and is acting, even if it is really their enemies who accomplish it. The defeat of Israel before her enemies is found throughout the Old Testament. Verse 17 continues, those who hate you shall reign over you and you shall flee when no one pursues you. Israel was subjected to foreign powers on numerous occasions in both testaments. After the close of scripture, this continued even until modern times. An instance of them fleeing when not pursued is found in Jeremiah 43. Go read it. I'm not going to read it to you because we got a long sermon. The choice is yours and it is clearly laid out. Will you choose life and walk closely with me? No. You will choose another path. There is no doubt. Time will tell. Just wait and see. I have spoken in advance and showed what lies ahead. There could be abundance mixed with peace and life, but that will not be the case. You have chosen the instead. This will lead to nothing but sadness, trouble, and strife. Oh, Israel, if you would just pay heed. Oh, my people, if you would just cling closely to me. But your hearts are wicked, lustful, and filled with greed. And great trouble for you is your woeful destiny. Our second thought today is seven times over. It's verses 18 through 39. Verse 18, and after all this, if you do not obey me, then I will punish you seven times more for your sins. The Lord now promises a second level of punishment, sevenfold punishment upon the people for failing to pay heed. This will be repeated four times. Each time there will be an increase in severity. Hear the word yesar, to chasten or to punish is used for the first time. It's going to be used three more times in this chapter alone. The sevenfold punishment looks first to the meaning of seven, divine perfection. There will be a perfect execution of the anticipated punishment. As it is the sabbatical number, it is also to be a reminder of the breaking of the covenant by the people. Also, if the punishments of verses 14 through 17 are an indication of punishment leading up to and including the first exile, then the number seven here would be a seven times multiplication of punishment leading up to and including a second exile. Though the words of verses 14 through 17 are not nearly all that is recorded elsewhere as punishment before the first exile, they may simply be given as an all-encompassing thought. Now, the terrors of verses 18 through 39 would reflect the absolute horror of what not obeying the first exile would mean. Verse 19, I will break the pride of your power. The term geon uzechem, or pride of your power, is found here and in Ezekiel 24, verse 21, where it speaks of the sanctuary of the Lord. It is debated if that is what is being referred to, but there is no reason to assume it's not. In destroying the temple by the Babylonians and then by the Romans, the land was also destroyed. This led naturally to the plagues which follow. Verse 19 continues, I will make your heavens like iron and your earth like bronze. In the destruction of the cities, which included Jerusalem and the sanctuary there, the Romans built up siege works. In doing so, they cut down the trees of the land. In this, the natural rain cycles of the land were disrupted. If any rains fell... They were not enough to support crops and produce. This continued on until the return of Israel to the land. In their return, they began planting trees, and the cycle of former and latter rains has returned to the land. This has happened in our lifetime. This was prophesied 
3,000 years ago by Moses, and it has happened in our lifetime. It's amazing to look at these words and to think this and to see the fulfillment of these things. We've talked about this several times in Thursday night Bible studies, how God did it and how he orchestrated it all. And when you see it laid out, especially on a chalkboard, you can see the perfection of what God has done. Verse 20, and your strength shall be spent in vain. The word rick or vain was introduced in verse 16. It means vain, empty, of no purpose. The people would work in the field, but the result would be completely wasted effort. Verse 20 continues, for your land shall not yield its produce, nor shall the trees of the land yield their fruit. What was promised as a blessing in verse 4, the yield of produce and the yielding of fruit, is now a resulting curse. The land fails to produce and the trees fail to bear. Exactly the opposite of verse 4 is realized here. This sad state is recorded in Habakkuk 3, verse 17, with these words. Though the fig tree may not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, though the labor of the olive oil may fail, and the fields yield no food. Verse 21. Then if you walk contrary to me and are not willing to obey me, I will bring on you seven times more plagues according to your sins. A third level of punishment is now promised. The Lord uses a new word, keri, translated as contrary here. It comes from kara, which means to happen. And so this gives the sense of the people simply allowing life to happen without a care and thus acting contrary. If that doesn't sound like America today, I don't know what else does. It will be used seven times. All are found in these verses to come in this chapter. It signifies opposition and even hostility. If the Lord's corrective measures are not heeded by the people, he takes it as a hostile act, and thus punishment seven times over is to be expected. Verse 22, I will also send wild beasts among you, which shall rob you of your children, destroy your livestock, and make you few in number. The term here is chayat hasadeh, or life of the field, and thus it is any living creature of the field, be it beasts or vipers. In Deuteronomy 32, verse 24, this is described as the teeth of beasts and the poison of serpents. In 2 Kings 17, the Lord sent lions among the people. Such words are found elsewhere in Ezekiel. What is more the case, though, is that wild animals of all kinds are specifically spoken of in the Bible as evil people, wicked rulers, and so on. Thus, the wild beasts referred to here are as much to be equated with people as they are actual animals. This then explains verse 22, continuing, and your highways shall be desolate. The word shamem, meaning to make desolate or to astonish, is a new word here. It will become rather common as a word in the Bible after this, but it is notable that it will be seen seven more times in this chapter alone. The emptiness of roads and highways are noted several times in later books of the Bible, such as in Judges chapter 5, Isaiah 33, and Zephaniah 3. Such desolate highways are to be attributed more to human foes than actual wild animals. Verse 23, and if by these you are not reformed by me, but walk contrary to me, if the previous remedial efforts are found ineffective, then a fourth elevation of punishment is needed. Such was the case at Jeremiah's time. Remember, Jeremiah is just before the fall of Jerusalem to the Babylonians and at that time. The people were chastened, and they still did not heed. Here's what it says. In vain I have chastened your children. They received no correction. Your sword has devoured your prophets like a destroying lion. 
the Lord promises that if such is the case, verse 24, then I also will walk contrary to you and I will punish you yet seven times for your sins. Now the word keri introduced in verse 21 is used as an action by the Lord instead of by the people. If you remember, it comes from a word meaning to happen. And thus it seems as if bad or hostile things are simply happening, as if God just gave up caring for them. But the truth is that the Lord is attentively punishing the people for their transgressions. Despite not being a popular view of Jewish history, especially terror such as the pogroms in Russia and the Holocaust in Germany, Israel has only itself to blame for what has occurred. They have not been obedient to the Lord, and their punishment has come upon them seven times for their sins. Until they come to this realization, there can be no cure for what will continue to come upon them. Verse 25, And I will bring a sword against you that will execute the vengeance of the covenant. The sword here is a devouring instrument. This is not merely the sword of the enemy being brought against them, but it is inclusive of it. What is being said here is that for their violation of the covenant, the Lord would bring vengeance on them by first bringing the enemy with their sword to destroy. In this, the people would then retreat into the fortified cities as is seen next. Verse 25 continues, when you are gathered together within your cities, I will send pestilence among you. This is the second sword, the deber or pestilence. In 1 Chronicles, this is exactly what the pestilence is called, Cherev Yehovah, or the sword of Yehovah. Verse 25 continues, and you shall be delivered into the hand of the enemy. Due to the famine and plague which results from a city besieged, the strength and numbers of the people would finally result in being forced to give up and to surrender. This is seen in the fall of Jerusalem in Jeremiah, and it is recorded in detail by Flavius Josephus concerning the fall of Jerusalem to the Romans. Verse 26, when I have cut off your supply of bread, 10 women shall bake your bread in one oven and they shall bring back your bread by weight and you shall eat and not be satisfied. When I have broken the staff of your bread, it is a proverbial expression which indicates that the supply of bread represented by the staff which supports man no longer is enough to feed the people. Instead, the bread of 10 families, represented by the women who bake it, would be baked in one oven. From there, the single loaf would be divided by weight, every crumb being precious to those who would share it at home. But what is brought to be eaten by the woman would not satisfy those who received it. This is literally recorded as coming upon Jerusalem in Ezekiel 4, verse 16 and elsewhere. Verse 27, and after all this, if you do not obey me, but walk contrary to me, if after such terrible times as have been described, no change in the people's contrary walk is noted, then a fifth level of punishment is to be meted out upon them. Verse 28, then I also will walk contrary to you in fury. In verse 24, when the people continue to walk contrary to the Lord, he said that he would also walk contrary to them. Now he says he will do so, but in fury. There is an elevation to his judgment. Verse 28 continues, and I, even I, will chastise you seven times for your sins. Af-ani. There is a stress here on the personal nature of the punishment. It is not a by-happenstance thing which would occur to Israel, but rather a purposeful infliction of punishment directly from the Lord. And the elevation of the punishment is again seven times for their sins. Verse 29 you shall eat the flesh of your sons, and you shall eat the flesh of your daughters. 
The horrifying details of this warning are further described in Deuteronomy chapter 28. And the warnings became reality, as is seen in the captivity of Samaria in 2 Kings verse 6, and again in the captivity of Jerusalem in the book of Jeremiah, Lamentations, and Ezekiel. Children being eaten by their parents is recorded in the Bible in all of those locations. The horrifying practice then occurred during the Roman siege of Jerusalem. Flavius Josephus records it. As terrifying as that is, as mournful as it is, as scary as it is, this happened to the people because of their rejection of the Lord. Verse 30, I will destroy your high places, cut down your incense altars, and cast your carcasses on the lifeless forms of your idols. Three actions against the Lord are promised to be corrected. The first is the destruction of their bama, or high places. People would go to elevated locations to worship deities, including the Lord, even though they were only to worship the Lord in this way at the temple. The Lord promised these would be destroyed. The next are the Haman, here translated as incense altars. The word comes from Hama, meaning sun, or Hamam, meaning hot. Some translations thus call them sun pillars, as if dedicated to the sun. Others, incense altars, because of the heat burning incense to false gods. Surely they did both. So either translation, whichever you have, it's fine. The third action is to cast their carcasses on the carcasses of their idols. The gilul, or idol, is now seen for the first time here. It comes from galal, meaning to roll. And so these are probably circular stones or logs. The irony is not to be missed in how the Lord compares the dead bodies of the people to the dead idols that they served. The utter contempt of the Lord for both idols and idolaters is to be noted and to be remembered. Ezekiel 6 describes the Lord's promise to bring these words about. Here's what it says there. Indeed, I, even I, will bring a sword against you, and I will destroy your high places. Then your altars shall be desolate, your incense altars shall be broken, and I will cast down your slain men before your idols, and I will lay the corpses of the children of Israel before their idols, and I will scatter your bones all around your altars. In all your dwelling places, the cities shall be laid waste, and the high places shall be desolate, so that your altars may be laid waste and made desolate." Your idols may be broken and made to cease. Your incense altars may be cut down and your works may be abolished. The slain shall fall in your midst and you shall know that I am the Lord. Isn't this mournful? Isn't it horrifying? Remember when I gave you communion about eight or nine weeks ago and I said tomorrow I've got to start typing Leviticus 26 and it includes the curses and I said I don't know how I'm going to do it. It is one of the most difficult passages in Scripture to follow and to say, this actually happened, and now I've got to tell the people this in a realistic manner. They can't hide what the Lord did because this is coming upon the entire world in the end times because of our rejection of the Lord. How mournful is this? The bodies of the people would be so thoroughly mixed with those of the idols that they would form one putrid pile of garbage. What is to be especially noted about this verse is that it presupposes that these things will probably be made. They haven't even entered into the land yet, but the Lord identifies what they would make and how they would prostitute themselves to these things. Verse 30 continues, and my soul shall abhor you. This is exactly the opposite of the words of verse 11. I will set my tabernacle among you and my soul shall not abhor you. Instead of the tabernacle and fellowship, there will be idols and abhorring. Verse 31, I will lay your cities waste and bring your sanctuaries to desolation, and I will not smell the fragrance of your sweet aromas. 
The Lord promises to bring the cities to chorba or waste. It's a new word indicating desolation or ruin. But the promise is on your sanctuaries. The word is plural, which could mean the several sanctuaries within the Lord's house. It is used this way in Jeremiah 51 verse 51. However, it doesn't say the Lord's house or my sanctuary here. It says your sanctuaries. Thus, it is probably what is referred to in Amos chapter 7. Here's what that says. Behold, I am setting a plumb line in the midst of my people Israel. I will not pass by them anymore. The high places of Isaac shall be desolate and the sanctuaries of Israel shall be laid waste. I will rise with the sword against the house of Jeroboam. Now, it's kind of curious. I just want to let you know that that was my morning reading. I read the Bible in order all the way through, and it happened to be my morning reading today when I'm doing this sermon. Didn't plan it that way. Even though these were false sanctuaries, they still burnt incense to the Lord at such places. Eventually, they would no longer even do this. He would utterly destroy them so that the incense would no longer burn. Verse 32, I will bring the land to desolation, and your enemies who dwell in it shall be astonished at it. The land itself was to be so completely destroyed that even their enemies who dwelt among them would be utterly astounded at what had occurred. Exact words to match this are found in Jeremiah and Ezekiel. Think of Nazi Germany. Our troops went in there and they were utterly astounded at the desolation of the land. Well, the people were there. They were there to destroy Israel. And when they got through there, they said, it's already been destroyed. The Lord took care of it. All we had to do was come into the land and just complete the process. They were astonished at it. Verse 33, I will scatter you among the nations and draw out a sword after you. The Lord promises to zara or scatter the people among the nations. Listen carefully with this word zara. Why would he choose this word? It's only been used once so far to describe what Moses did to the golden calf that the people had made. Like that which was crushed to powder and scattered upon the waters, so Israel would be scattered upon the nations. And there, the Lord promised to continue to draw out his sword against them, further scattering and further destroying. There could be no turning back at the sword as it followed closely upon them. These words are the exact opposite of what it said in verse 6. And the sword will not go through your land. Instead of safety in the land, there would be terror outside the land. Can anyone not see this as having been fulfilled in these past 2,000 years? Literally and completely? Verse 33 continues, Your land shall be desolate and your cities waste. With the destruction and dispersion would come desolation. The land would be ruined and it would turn to further ruin during its time of being unattended. Remember what I read you to open this today? Mark Twain, exactly what the Bible said would happen is exactly what came about. But there is in this also good to be seen. Verse 34, then the land shall enjoy its Sabbath as long as it lies desolate and you are in your enemy's land. The land was to be given a Sabbath rest every seventh year and every 50th year. It has been calculated by one scholar that from the entry into Canaan by Joshua until the Babylonian captivity, there were approximately 863 years. In this, there should have been about 123 Sabbath years and about 17 years of Jubilee. There is no record to say actually how many or if any of these were observed or not. But one specific reason for the exile is recorded in 2 Chronicles chapter 36. And those who escaped from the sword he carried away to Babylon, where they became servants to him and his sons until the rule of the kingdom of Persia, to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah, until the land had enjoyed her Sabbaths, 
As long as she lay desolate, she kept Sabbath to fulfill 70 years. 70 years then may be simply a multiplication of the sacred number seven, decided upon by God as sufficient for what was lacking in the observance by the people. Regardless, we are told, verse 34 continues, then the land shall rest and enjoy its Sabbaths. This is the second time in the verse this is stated, and it is almost therefore a note of bitter sarcasm. The land was burdened by the people, and now the land would oh, just simply rest apart from the people. While they were in captivity, the land would rest in freedom. Verse 35, as long as it lies desolate, it shall rest. For the time it did not rest on your Sabbaths when you dwelt in it. There's a note of patient waiting in these words. The assumption is that the Sabbaths would be ignored, and yet the punishment was delayed. Instead of acting on each failed Sabbath observance, the Lord would make a tally. As the people continued to assume that he would never act, another addition would be made to the ledger. But the promise is that action would come. And arrears of Sabbath years had accumulated for the land while the greed of the people had led them to work when they should not have worked. Therefore, the land received its days of rest based on the years it was deprived. And the Israelites were deprived of their work based on the rest that they had neglected. Justice was served for the land and judgment was served upon the people. Now I'll stop right there and I'll say that if you realize what happened when the Jews went back into the land, I've talked about this in the Bible studies, they went back into the land and there was nothing there. It was utterly waste. Nobody owned it. The Ottoman Empire was their property and they sold it off to the Jews at exorbitant prices and said, oh, those stupid Jews, they're buying land that is no good at all. And they went in there at the expense of many, many, many lives in the late 1800s and early 1900s and they drained the swamps and they planted trees and they cleared out the river so that they could once again flow out to the ocean because the sand of the Nile River had gone up in that direction because that's the way the Mediterranean flows and it had plugged up the rivers. And that's why all this desolation came. The Romans cut down all the trees to build siege works. There were no trees in the land. The cycle stopped. The rivers that did flow went into swamps and marshes. And what happened after that? Israel went in and they took care of all of those things. They reestablished the land and the land had enjoyed its Sabbath. In other words, all of that stuff from the mountains had flowed down into the valleys and filled up and it became peat. And they have the largest crops in the world today. Their cows produce more milk than any cows on the planet, including the United States of America. Exactly what the Bible said would happen has happened. But before the good came, the bad. And while the people were pursued and destroyed, the land enjoyed its Sabbaths. Verse 36, and as for those of you who are left, I will send faintness into their hearts in the land of their enemies. A unique word is given here, morek or faintness. It comes from a word meaning soft. And thus the heart would either be one which was cowardly or it would not be able to withstand the pressures which troubled it. So much so that verse 36 continues, the sound of a shaken leaf shall cause them to flee. They shall flee as though fleeing from a sword, and they shall fall when no one pursues. Two more new and rare words are introduced here. Nadaf, meaning shaken, and menusah, flight. It is a sign of the horrifying nature of the events that Moses uses words that are wholly unique or extremely limited in their use in all of the Bible in order to reveal the magnitude of what lay ahead for the people if and when they disobeyed. It is sure that a single driven leaf makes almost no sound at all. 
And yet, it would produce a thunderous, deafening noise in the ears of those who had failed to honor the Lord. That single leaf would be as a sword slashing by the ears, causing them to get up and run as if it would cut them in pieces. And so flee they would. Verse 37, they shall stumble over one another as it were before a sword when no one pursues. The sense here is that when terror strikes, the people would simply run over one another like soldiers breaking ranks in a retreat or a gathering of people running from an oncoming avalanche. Nobody would care about the next person. One would simply stumble and the others would simply run over them. Such would be the terror even when nobody was actually pursuing. The faintness of the heart would have each on such edge that they would be constantly in fear. As this was so, how much more fearful when facing a real challenge. Verse 37 continues, And you shall have no power to stand before your enemies. The terror of the ordeal would leave few willing to fight and none able to win. When the Lord stood against Israel, the enemies would have little trouble destroying their target. Verse 38, You shall perish among the nations and the land of your enemies shall eat you up. The sense here is that either through life or death among the Gentiles, those who were dispersed would remain so. They would be lost among the peoples and most would either lose their identity there or they would die there. This is the sense of the term, the land of your enemies shall eat you up. It is a phrase used in Numbers 13 when the 12 spies went to search out Canaan. And it is used in Ezekiel 36 verse 13 where the land of Israel is said to devour men. For the majority of the 10 northern tribes, this was literally fulfilled. Most were absorbed into the nations and their identity was lost. Eventually, they died in those foreign lands while only a remnant of each tribe was left alive. Verse 39, And those of you who are left shall waste away in their iniquity in your enemies' lands. One final new word today is makak, meaning to rot or fester. It will be seen twice in this verse and then not again all the way until the Psalms. The idea here is that most of those who go into exile would simply rot away there without ever returning to the land of Israel. In saying they will waste away in their iniquity, it is referring to the punishment of their iniquity. In other words, the same word in Hebrew carries both the idea of sin and punishment because sin is its own punishment. As James says in the New Testament, when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. So you have sin and punishment in one thought. Paul explains this in Romans as well. Verse 39 finishes with these words. Also in their father's iniquities, which are with them, they shall waste away. As I said earlier, the Lord doesn't simply punish the people for every missed Sabbath year. Instead, the fathers sinned and eventually a time came when the people were punished in the sin of their fathers. The cumulative wrath of disobedience eventually has to be punished. This is the idea of the flood of Noah, and it is the idea of the coming time of Jacob's trouble, also known as the tribulation period. The world is storing up wrath, but people keep sinning. Nobody thinks, oh boy, we really deserve to be punished. And so the sin continues and the wrath grows if nothing else has shown you this, a short and quick sermon on these verses of Leviticus 26 today should do so. As terrible as the content has been at some points, I mean eating your own children, the magnitude of what was promised to Israel is going to be poured out on a global scale someday. It will be wrath leading to punishment, including abundant death. 
For those who die apart from God's grace and mercy, there will be the continuing eternal punishment which follows. All debts will be settled at that time. If one looks at the verses today in a broad way, there's some good news. They can see standing out in the words, the very cross of Jesus Christ. Though he was without sin, terror was appointed over him. We're going to go down these verses and you're going to see it. He suffered, as it were, carrying the diseases of the world. His light was extinguished and his life wasted away. While on the cross, the Lord's face was set against him, against he who never sinned, but who bore our sins. Those who hated him ruled over him, judged him, and sentenced him. Wild beasts surrounded him. It says it explicitly in the 22nd Psalm. The vengeance of the covenant was poured out on him. He was delivered into the hands of his enemy. He was deprived of bread. He, the bread of life, in him is rest, and yet he was deprived of rest. We could go on verse by verse, looking at what Israel was promised for disobedience and what Christ Jesus suffered in place of their and our disobedience. Leviticus 26 shows us the penalties for violation of the covenant which Israel had agreed upon. There's nothing unfair in what occurred to them over the years, and there is nothing unfair which will come upon the world when it is judged for its own wickedness. But there is mercy because of Jesus Christ. He accepted the punishment of the covenant for us. He received the pain, he received the agony, and he received the shame that others deserve. And in exchange, he has offered us a new covenant. It is one of peace and fellowship with God and forgiveness of sin committed. Next, we will look at the faithfulness of God in keeping his promises to Israel, even in their guilt. In this, he will remember not this covenant from here at Sinai. It's not what he speaks to them, but rather the covenant to their ancestors, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. It is not for the sake of the law of Moses but for the sake of the everlasting promises to the patriarchs that he will speak out those verses. The importance of this is not to be missed. The law of Moses has a termination point. Please understand this. It has a termination point. That termination point is the cross of Jesus Christ. We will all be judged by this law. It will either be judged in us and we will be condemned or it will be judged for us in Christ and we will be saved. Let us understand this, and let us call out now accepting Jesus' sacrifice for our misdeeds. By faith, we can once again be restored to God fully and completely and without fear of failure. Jesus Christ came. Now, I want you all to understand this. I say it week after week, and I know that you hear it, but I want you to keep thinking on it because it is the most important thing that you will ever hear in your life. God is infinite. He doesn't have parts. He's perfectly simple in his being. He's pure actuality. There's no change in God. He is outside of time. If he were in time, then there would be change in God as he responded. That's not God. He created the universe, including time, space, and matter for our benefit so that we could exist. He did it out of an act of love. But we sinned against God. He knew that we would do this before he created us. Revelation 13, 8, behold the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. He knew that we would do this. And so in order to correct that fault, because he's infinite and we're finite, there can be no fellowship in us. We have sin. He is perfectly holy. There can be no fellowship at all. None. And so what did he do? He came into the stream of humanity, born of a woman, born of Mary, in the womb of Mary. And what that means is that he was born without sin. Because in the Bible, 
The picture of circumcision shows us the transfer of the sin nature. It goes from father to child. Well, guess what? Every person on this planet has a father. And so all males and all females inherit their father's sin. That was a picture of the coming Christ. God went into the womb of a virgin and became incarnate. The sin was cut, just like the picture of circumcision. The sin is cut. And so now we have somebody that is qualified to take away our sin. But there's more. He was born under the law that he gave to Israel. He now has to fulfill that law in every single precept, in every single detail, perfectly, without ever sinning. He's qualified to take away our sins. Is he capable of doing it? The Gospels record that Jesus Christ did it. That's why they're there, is to record the life of Jesus Christ. Behold, I find no fault in this man. All the way through the Gospels, it's recorded he perfectly executed God's will. So he's qualified. He's capable. Is he willing? I lay down my life of my own accord. No man takes it from me. He gave up his life, this perfect, innocent life, the creator of all things, gave up his innocent, perfect life to take care of our sin problem. It is through his shed blood alone that this can occur. There is no, no possibility of being saved apart from him. God didn't come up with a plan B. There's only a plan A, and it is through the shed blood of the cross of Calvary. We went through that this past week in the Thursday Bible study. If you don't understand that, go back and watch that study, and you'll see how clearly and perfectly that is displayed in the book of Romans. No plan B. There's only one way. Jesus Christ died to take away our sin debt, the greatest act of grace and mercy imaginable. And these people had that option even before he came. Why? Because their sacrifices were an allowance by God to look forward to the cross of Christ. It was by faith that they exercised the day of atonement. So they were saved in the same way as we are saved, in anticipation of the Messiah instead of in fulfillment of what he has done on our side of the cross. They had no excuse, and the world has no excuse. The judgment will come, and it will be executed in you or in Christ. If you have never received Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you know, I've got people here that, how many of you attended Catholic churches? I grew up in the Episcopal Church. It's Catholic light. I never heard any of this. I was never told these things, right? You're told, oh, you do this and you do that, and God loves everybody, and it doesn't work that way. The significance of the cross of Jesus Christ means that God himself was willing to take the punishment that we deserve and to die on that cross for us. And he asks us to do one thing, one thing, to believe. I believe that Jesus Christ died for my sins, and I believe that he came out of the grave, the resurrection to prove. Why? Because the wages of sin is death. If he had sinned, he would not have been resurrected. He would have been found with fault before the Father, and he would have remained in the grave. But he rose for our justification. If you will simply believe that one thing, you will be saved. It says the moment you do, Ephesians 1, 13 and 14. I thought I had it written on the board. I don't. It says the moment you do, he will seal you with the Holy Spirit, and you will be reconciled to God the Father forever. It is eternal in nature. Please, if you have never humbled yourself before the Lord of creation, today is the day, good friend. All right? I have a closing verse for you today. It's from Romans 3. It's verses 21 and 22. But now, the righteousness of God apart from the law, everything we have seen, everything we have been looking at for years, getting through the first three books of the Bible has been law. A righteousness apart from the law is revealed, being witnessed by the law and prophets. As I said, everything points to Jesus, even the punishments today. They point to what he did for us. 
even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ. Why? Because we don't see him. Thomas said, oh, my Lord and my God. He said, blessed are you, but blessed are those who have not seen and believe. Why? Because God looks for faith. There's nothing we can give him. He is the possessor of the universe. We can't give him anything. We can't do anything except exercise faith through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe. Isn't that wonderful? He makes it so simple that Paul elsewhere calls it a stumbling block. The stumbling block is the thing you don't see. I'm walking along and there's this little piece of concrete raised up and I trip over it. Man, if it was this high, I'd just walk around it. But I trip because I don't see it. Faith is what God wants. The stumbling block. Next week, big week, isn't it? Job 19, 23 through 27. After a weary walk in this life we trod, it's entitled, In My Flesh, I Shall See God. That's a Resurrection Day sermon. Wow, can't wait. The Lord has you exactly where he wants you. He has a good plan and a purpose for you. Even if you have a lifetime of sin heaped up behind you, he can wash it away. Everybody here had their sins washed away. I remember that day. It was so beautiful. I cried, and I cried for three more months. Every time I went to church, I just sat there in tears thinking that he had forgiven Charlie Garrett of the things that I had done. Pick one of the big ten. Go ahead. I've done it. All right? I'm not kidding. I'm absolutely serious. He washed away the guilt of a lifetime. He can wash it away, and he can purify you completely and wholly. So follow him and trust him, and he'll do marvelous things for you and through you, okay? Wonderful stuff. I got a poem for you. It's a long poem, a lot of verses, sorry, but it's a good poem. It's entitled Assured Curses. Wait, before I give you my poem, though, let me give you one thought for the day. I do this every week, and I want, there's so much information, all these new words and words that are used 10 times in this chapter alone. Let me give you a thought for the day. Horror, dread, and deprivation, or honor, delight, and abundance. Which will you choose? Christ took all of the curses upon himself so that we could obtain the blessings. Okay? Assured curses is our poem. But if you do not obey me and if do not observe all these commandments, and if you despise my statutes, or if your soul abhors my judgments, so that you do not all my commandments perform, but break my covenant, then hear the words I warn. I also will do this to you. I will even appoint terror over you, wasting disease and fever. So I do submit, which shall consume the eyes and cause sorrow of heart. And you shall sow your seed in vain, for your enemies shall eat it. I will set my face against you, and you shall be defeated by your enemies. My word is true. Those who hate you shall reign over you, and you shall flee when no one pursues you. And after all this, if you do not obey me, then I will punish you seven times more for your sins. So shall it be. I will break the pride of your power, thus ending your mirth. I will make your heavens like iron and like bronze shall be your earth. And your strength shall be spent in vain for your land. Its produce shall not yield, nor shall the trees of the land yield their fruit. Barren shall be the trees of the field. Then if you walk contrary to me and are not willing to obey me, I will bring on you seven times more plagues according to your sins, shall it be. I will also send wild beasts among you, which shall rob you of your children, a horrible state, destroy your livestock and make you few in number, and your highways shall be desolate. And if by these things you are not reformed by me, but walk contrary to me, such are your crimes, then I will walk contrary to you, and I will punish you for your sins yet seven times. 
and I will bring a sword against you. Then I will execute the vengeance of the covenant. When you are gathered together within your cities, I will send pestilence among you until you are spent. And you shall be delivered into the hand of the enemy. Surely this will come to pass. So shall it be. When I have cut off your supply of bread, ten women shall bake in one oven your bread. And they shall bring back your bread by weight. And you shall eat, but not be satisfied, Ed. And after all this, if you do not obey me, but walk contrary to me, such are your continued crimes, then I will also walk contrary to you in fury. And I, even I, will chastise you for your sins seven times. You shall eat the flesh of your sons for your meat, and the flesh of your daughters you shall eat. I will destroy your high places, cut down your incense altars, so I shall do, and cast your carcasses on the lifeless forms of your idols. My soul shall abhor you. I will lay your cities waste and bring your sanctuaries to desolation, and I will not smell the fragrance of your sweet aromas. You, who are to be my holy nation, I will bring the land to desolation, and your enemies who dwell in it shall be astonished at it. I will scatter you among the nations and draw out a sword after you. Your land shall be desolate and your cities waste for the crimes you did commit. Then the land shall enjoy its Sabbaths as long as it lies desolate and you are in your enemy's land. Then the land shall rest and enjoy its Sabbaths. Then shall the nations understand. As long as it lies desolate, it shall rest. So I submit for the time it did not rest on your Sabbaths when you dwelt in it. And as for those of you who are left, so to you I address, I will send into their hearts in the land of their enemies, faintness. The sound of a shaken leaf shall cause them to flee. They shall flee as though fleeing from a sword, and they shall fall when no one pursues according to my solemn word. They shall stumble over one another as it were before a sword throughout the land when no one pursues, and you shall have no power before your enemies to stand." You shall perish among the nations, and the land of your enemies shall eat you up, so shall it be. And those of you who are left shall waste away in your enemies' lands in their iniquity. Also in their father's iniquities, which are with them, they shall waste away like the branch broken at the stem. Lord God, Israel was warned, and yet they did not obey. They received what was just, right, and due. And we too have walked in a contrary way. We have neglected our duty and responsibility to you. But in Christ there is mercy, and in Christ there is grace. Through him we are freed from the guilt we bore. Then through him we receive a smile from your face. And that favor will last forever and forevermore. Thank you, Christ, our Lord Jesus. Thank you for all through him you have done for us. Hallelujah and amen. amen. Heavenly Father, it's such a mournful thing to think of what happened to Israel but as an object lesson for us to read and to understand that you love us, that you care for us, that you cherish us, but you are righteous, you are just, and you are holy. Help us to appreciate that fact and to never tread lightly upon your goodness, but to be grateful for each thing that comes our way and to be thankful, to praise you for those things, and to warn others about what is coming in their life or in their judgment. It's all ahead, Lord, and it's there waiting for us to see in your word so that we don't make the fatal error of not calling on Christ Jesus as our Lord and our Savior. So, Lord, I pray for any person that has never done that, the simple act of faith. I believe I receive what Christ did, and I yield myself to him. I pray for any person that's listening now or that hears the video in the future that will see this and come to an understanding that you love us enough to do this through the broken body of your own Son. Thank you for Jesus Christ, our Lord, and it's in his exalted and precious name we pray. Amen.